You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show today, how boxing can help those with Parkinson's disease. Also ahead, a new procedure for hip replacement surgery at Markham Stouffville Hospital. But we begin with the long-awaited summer forecast. Afwaba starts us off. Joining me to chat today and to talk about uh, the spring that should have been and what to expect for summer is uh, none other than Senior Climatologist with Environment Canada, Dave Phillips. Dave, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you, Afwa. Nice to join you again and just uh, relive the, the summer that, uh, or the, the uh, I really think that spring was was more winter-like than summer-like. I mean, often we can reach the first day of um of uh, summer uh and uh, we already had too much summer like we had last year and this year it's just not enough so we can wrap about this and and hopefully we can provide some some good news for uh, residents of uh of Markham and Unionville and York Region. Perfect. Okay, so let's let uh let's uh, just do a quick recap on what happened with spring. It looked like we had a little bit more rainy days than usual. Um is that going to translate into the summer season since it was supposed to be a transition season? We didn't really see the transition though. No, I think, uh, you know, spring was rather disappointing to most people, um, and, um, and, and I think it was too much winter-like. Uh, we saw, uh, March, April, May, and into June, uh, every month was cooler than normal. It wasn't record-breaking, but my sense is it probably was the coolest in about, uh, well, since 1992. I mean, uh, probably 27 years, uh, it's not been this cool in the in springtime. And it's sort of like a double whammy. And not only was it cool, but it was also wet. Not record wet, but about 30% more precipitation than we normally would get. And a lot of days with rains. It was almost like the water torture test. I mean, it wasn't as if all that rain fell in one or two days. It fell over many days. And, and that's what made it sort of um, rather rather disappointing. And farmers clearly know that. I mean, they couldn't get onto their fields. There's still standing water out there. Some of the farmers haven't been able to do any seeding. And gardeners, I mean, the gardens have never looked better, but, but still there is a lot of um, grass to be cut and, uh, and, and uh, ground is wet. And, uh, and I think we've just been, what's missing is, is summery-like weather. Uh, if we look at the number of days in York Region that have been, say, take the warmest day that you had this, this particular spring. And last year this time there were 16 days that were warmer than that. So it really, it really has been uh, the lack of heat, too much rain, and uh, and I think a lot of people are saying if this is the dry run or the dress rehearsal for what uh, summer is like, they're maybe not going to like it because last year we had in York Region over 30 days with temperatures were above 30. And normally that's about double what we normally would get, and I think we've had only one day so far this year that it's been above 30. So I think there's some angst out there thinking that oh. Is this going to be the year without uh, uh, summer? Uh, a lot of people don't want that, of course. But on the other hand, I mean, if it is cooler and uh, and more comfortable, it's healthier for us. And uh, uh, but um, some people thought we had too much summer last year, and those same people were probably saying we didn't have enough this year. 
Oh, humans, we always complain, right? We complain about everything. Okay, well, but... we, when it comes to the weather, it just seems to be king and queen in Canada. We we love to complain about it. We're never happy. Uh, it's either too much weather or too little weather. It's rarely is it the Goldilocks of weather here. And yet, I think we have many, many more better days, good days, then. but we're just maybe a little greedy. We want it to be the perfect kind of situation. And, of course, the problem is that different weather is different, means different things for different folk. Um, you know, I often, and you and your profession, me and mine, we don't often editorialize about whether we need rain. Uh, we say sometimes it's a great weekend. Well, hey, it may be not so great for some people who are hoping for some rains, like farmers, in a, in a dry condition. So we have to, have to be mindful of the fact that weather is what but it is, and some people are winners, and some people are losers. But um, uh, clearly, uh, I think the contrast between this summer coming up, we won't be doing complaining about the heat and humidity, which we were doing a lot of last year, but I think that we might very well uh, say that, you know, it's kind of disappointing. We had a no-fall last year. We had a winter that seemed tough at times, long. We came to the spring, and it was more winter-like than summer-like. And so I think people, there's almost a bit of weather rage breaking out there that people feel that hey they're owed good weather and nothing nature never listens to us with regards to whether that's true or not uh, it's just dished out the way it is and uh, we have to go along with it okay so now that we're coming to see uh, summer it's it's right on our our, our front step and um, right. some have already started predicting that it's going to be cooler and rainier this season coming up what have you seen so far well, I mean, it's a big country, Canada. We have forecasts for all areas, and I, and I really need to describe to you nationally what we're seeing before I can zero in on what the Ontario situation is, because it's a little bit of uncertainty with regards to where Ontario is going to go. Um, but we certainly see a lot of warmer-than-normal conditions out west in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and also in the east uh, through parts of Quebec and in the Maritimes, Atlantic Canada. So, And then the north, we see a lot of warm conditions. So that puts Ontario right in sort of between those areas. And and while and I say that because there's a lot of warmer than normal conditions around us, but what our models are showing right now is some uncertainty. We're not sure which way it's going to go. It probably won't come out to be normal, a kind of a normal kind of temperature in summer. And so not too hot, not too cold. I think comfortable and healthy and nothing wrong with that. But hey, it may not be the weather for good for beer drinking weather or uh, muscle shirts and tank tops or cottaging or camping or things enjoying the great outdoors. It may be, in fact, um, uh, we're saving money on our, our air conditioning bills and uh, not having to water. Uh, and uh, so we have a lot of wet conditions going into the summer, and, uh, and we're already into it. I mean, Friday was the first uh, kind of uh, beginning of, of, our, of our summer and now here on the weekend. And, and you know, I, I sometimes think, actually, it doesn't really matter how summer goes as long as what the weekends are like. I've seen some summers where it's been wet and cool and, and, and statistically miserable. But for some reason, the weekends seem warm, dry, and sunny. And people thought it was actually a glorious kind of, um, of, a, of a summer season. So it all depends on timing as everything. If we can keep the, the miserable weather, the severe weather away from the weekends, it doesn't matter what the weekdays are like. I think people are willing to accept it. Of course, it always depends upon the two weeks 
that you or me have our holidays, and if it's good weather then, then we don't really care, I suppose, what the summer has been like. But um, last year, it was the same for everybody. We're all in the same situation. Nobody could complain about not having, you know, hot and humid kind of conditions, but it was unhealthy, too. We saw a lot of deaths in Quebec because of the heat and, and humidity, so we may not see that this year. My guessing is this, is that, you know, last year we may have had 30 days, twice as many days where the temperature got above 30. We might be lucky to see 9 or 10 days above 30, and uh, and we, we won't string necessarily several of those in a row. We might see one or two days here, and then a couple of weeks later, another two. So I think a little bit of back and forth, something for everybody this uh, this summer, and the water temperatures might be cooler than they've been for the last couple of years, and so certainly swimming and boating, uh, that may be a little less pleasant uh, than we've had other times, but um, it's what it is. Um, my, my hope would be that it would be comfortable at least, uh, uh, keep the weekends dry and sunny, and that we don't have a lot of severe weather, because we know that we're in an area of the country where we do get lightning strikes and tornadic events and hailstorms and, and those are kinds of things, so if we don't get the heat and humidity to complain about, well, we might get too much weather. We might have a lot of that. And of course, that's what we've seen so far. We've been very unsettled kind of weather. And sometimes, actually, the, the, the nature's already showing its trump cards as to what it's going to be. I mean, it's not hiding them. Uh, the fact that we've seen this unsettled, a variable, flip-flopping kind of weather, we can't string two or three good days in a row, may very well be the, the formula that uh, we see for the summer. And our models seem to suggest that right now. It's a little bit of uncertain. It could go either way. But I'm putting my money on the fact that it'll be a kind of a normal kind of summer. Not too hot, not too cold. I mean, pleasant, but hey, for some people, that's not enough. They want really some, some heat scorching, torrid kind of days. And, um, and we just may not see it in this, this, uh, this summer. You know what? I am fine with that. I will count my blessings and I will take your perspective. And it, it can be, you know what, less than ideal during the weekdays. So long as the weekends are fine, I am fine with that. Well, I really think that's the bottom line. I mean, because uh, we've seen years like that, and for some reason, it's almost nature is feeling sorry for us, and, and weekends, especially long weekends, if we can keep those weather-free, uh, then uh, we're, I think we're, we're got greedy, you know, we accept what it is, but um, I think we'll be pretty pleased if we can keep weekends, uh, majority of the weekends are, are pretty, pretty nice, and, uh, and we'll accept it. Now, if it's a perfect situation, well, if it's going to rain, and we need rain at times, but if it could rain at 3 o'clock in the morning, well, hey, uh, then uh, uh, I think most people would say that it's just almost utopia in a way. We've got the rains that we need. It's not been interrupting my golf or my gardening, and uh, and uh, life is good. So uh, my sense is we just have to – we can't do anything about it, Ashwa. We don't manufacture it. Uh, nature creates it, and we just have to endure it. And uh, But my sense is I think there will be something about this summer that will delight most people something for everyone and that's what's best dave phillips thank you so much i appreciate your time this is the feed on 105.9 the region our next couple of stories are focused on your health including a new procedure for hip replacement surgery at markham stoville hospital galit solomon is on call 
A team of surgeons at Markham Stovall Hospital is now using a new minimally invasive procedure for hip replacement surgery. The team says this procedure has faster recovery time for patients with reduced post-surgery pain and better healing. Joining me now to talk about the procedure is Dr. Saeed Hader from Markham Stovall Hospital. Dr. Hader, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. You're welcome. Now, before we explore this new procedure, tell us about your work and your role at the hospital. Um, I'm an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in uh, minimally invasive knee and hip replacements. And I've been um, here almost uh, 15 years now. And um, my uh, main uh, 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 clients and patients are um, younger patients with osteoarthritis, um, who are um, looking for faster recovery and uh, want to get back to work sooner rather than later. Sure, sure. So, you know what, let's dive into the details of the surgery now. What can you tell us about it? Well, um, you know, about 15 years ago or so, um, hip replacement, knee replacements, patients used to stay in the hospital almost like 10 to 14 days. And recovery used to be prolonged, and that would affect people's personal and working life significantly. Of course. So over the 10, 15 years, science has uh, improved the techniques, and we have made a lot of progress to an extent that we can send patients home now on the same day, and they can get back to their work and normal life in fairly uh, uh, prompt fashion mm-hmm. and quite quickly. Uh, without wasting too much of their uh, time laying in the bed and um, recovering, recovering in the hospital, um, and they can go home and start driving and start traveling and do their normal work day-to-day right away. Why is then the recovery time so much quicker? The recovery time is quicker because there's less soft tissue trauma. Mm. Surgical recovery is directly related to how much trauma one gets during the surgery in terms of the muscle trauma, the skin trauma, and the trauma to the tissues around the joint, whether it's a hip or a knee joint. Um, so the, 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 as the surgeries improved and techniques improved, the trauma to the muscles decreased. That was made possible because of the type of incision we make and the type of approach we do now. Um, so we split the muscles rather than we cut the muscles. Mm. So it's less collateral damage. So I sometimes uh, call this more like a surgical strike than surgical procedure because you go in, there's very precise, very precise, uh, in, a, in a very precise way, very little collateral damage, and you do it in fast and efficient way. So, and it's, it's, it's not just a surgical technique. It was the whole process we have improved here at Martin Stowell where we can um, do this uh, efficiently without, less, without trauma uh, or too much trauma to the soft tissue, but also patients having a good experience. So I think it's a combination of the steps we have taken here which has led us to do this. Now, when and where was the procedure first introduced? It was so. So this procedure has been around for quite some time, uh, and it has been a progression of uh, improvement in this procedure. So direct anterior approach 
uh, has been around in GTA for about uh, five, six years. But the, we had some issues where the procedure used to cause, still used to cause some trauma, still used to require a lot of equipment and assistance, especially a, um, a, a special surgical table, which would cost uh, almost like two, three hundred thousand dollars, and so that was an, an impediment plus the, the 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 time it used to take. But now um, it, it takes uh, less time. So that progression started initially from U.S., uh, but the person who perfected it um, uh, is in Belgium, Dr. Christoph. He has done his PhD in perfecting this technique. So we as a team at Markham Stowell Hospital, which I think is unique, uh, of three surgeons and two nurses went to Belgium and learned this technique mm. that how to do direct anterior approach without um, causing too much trauma and create faster recovery for the patient and also give them a good experience. Now, what type of rehab? I mean, really, when you think about hip replacement, you, you assume that there would be a certain amount of rehab or physiotherapy that, need, that is required. What kind of rehab or physiotherapy would be required post-surgery when it comes to this procedure? Actually, very little. You know, surprisingly, you will see patients getting up uh, from their bed in the recovery room of course, with the help of a physio so that we make sure that they are safe and under controlled environment. But once they have achieved that and gone home, there is actually very little physiotherapy required in, after these procedures um, because there are no restrictions as such. Muscle has not been damaged, so they can sit and sleep whichever way they want. They can start driving right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and in old days, when we used to injure the muscles to get through to the hip, we used to put them on restrictions so that you can't sit on a lower seat, you can't cross your legs, you can't travel, and so on and so forth, and un- uh, until you finish the physio for six to eight weeks. Now, with this technique, you don't need any of that. We do send them for physio to one or two or three sessions where they just get trained to uh, you know, manage themselves, themselves safely, but other than that, they don't require a lot of physio at all. And it sounds like then patients, is, is it fair to assume that they'd be able to resume normal life activities fairly quickly? Fairly quickly. I would say, uh, practically speaking, uh, in about two weeks or so, mm. they should be walking without a limp and uh, walking fairly uh, with a normal pace. What about exercise and um, you know, sports activities? Um, with, with, with this technique, they can get back to sports uh, in about between three to four weeks after surgery, but uh, non, non-contact. So they can get back to uh, activities like swimming and golfing and cycling. But if people play hockey, and I do now, nowadays see a large population of my patients who are still playing hockey and they are younger, they're in their 50s and 60s, but unfortunately need hip or knee replacement, mm-hmm. I tell them to wait about six weeks. Okay. Now, do these hips need replacement or, you know, do they last a lifetime? How does that work? So uh, that has also improved over the years. They only used to last about 12 to 15 years. Now, because of new materials, new techniques, new type of uh, models, uh, it has gone up to about 25 years or close. 
but they're not for life. You mm-hmm. have to look after them. It's like having anything which is made of artificial materials have a shelf life. Um, and more you abuse and use them, obviously, the lesser life gets. So if you are doing just regular activities like cycling and swimming and golfing, then they should give you that amount of time. And if you do them at in in, in 60s and uh, 70s, then it's, it, it, then it's it's fine. But when you do a younger patients, we use a material like ceramic and uh, other materials which do tend to last longer. I but we, we, at this point, safely, we can say about 20 to 25 years. Okay. And if our listeners want more information, where can they go? Well, they can go on uh, uh, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons website or Canadian Orthopedic Association website which has very uh, n- nice uh, information about this. And also, Markham Stowell Hospital um, has uh, information on their website as well, uh, which, which is available. Uh, but we have uh, printed materials in our offices as well. Okay, very good. Dr. Hader from Markham Stowell Hospital, thank you so much for joining us on the feed today. Thank you so much. All the best. Take care. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Our next stop takes us to one-to-one rehab in Richmond Hill. And we're joined by physiotherapist Kiyomi Kitazaki. Kiyomi, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about one-to-one rehab, the services that are provided there, and maybe a little bit about your work as well? Certainly. Uh, One-to-one rehab provides various services, which include speech therapy, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, and dietitian services. Um, our head office, as you mentioned, is in Richmond Hill, but our service providers span across the greater Toronto area, uh, north to south, east to west, and we are primarily in the community. As a physiotherapist myself, I treat seniors in a specific region of Ontario, and those referrals come from a government-based institution called the Local Health Integrated Network, or the local limb. Now, often we hear that seniors are very much at risk for falls. What is fall prevention, and why is it so important to educate seniors on fall prevention? That's a good question. Fall prevention is a multidisciplinary approach uh, to addressing the physical, environmental, medical, and social aspects that contribute to falls in seniors. Um, It's very important to address these because we can have a significant impact in reducing uh, the injuries sustained from having a fall. Now, is there something that a senior can do in their own home to help reduce the risk of a fall? Most definitely. Um, With regard to the environmental setup, having a home safety risk assessment is very effective. It would include things such as identifying poor lighting conditions, uh, the placement of rugs that might be a source for tripping, um, slippery floors, um, perhaps the need for a grab bar in your bathroom or bedroom to determine as well whether your stairs are safe, whether um, throw rugs might be situated on the stairs or close to the stairs making it difficult. Um, Those are a few suggestions for what seniors can do specifically in the physical environment. Now, I hope that's helpful. It, it is, for sure. And if they do suffer a fall, what should they do? Well, first and foremost, when you fall, we recommend that all seniors take a few minutes just to stay put, stay still. Um, 
because sometimes pain and injury don't show up immediately. So the most important thing is to determine if you're hurt. Um, And if so, you need to call for help. Some people may be able to shout out or bang on a wall or they might wear a lifeline, which is um, a communication device that helps to alert um, care providers to come and assist them. Or maybe they have a cordless phone. So we say, you know, wait for someone to come and assist you and evaluate how you're doing before you get up. And it may include a visit to the hospital or a treatment by emergency medical individuals. If you're not hurt, then you can proceed to stand up, which generally involves um, rolling onto your side, getting into a four-point kneeling position on all fours, and crawling to a very firm and sturdy chair uh, to place your palms on that chair and bring one leg forward so the, the sole of your foot is on the floor and use the strength in your arms and legs to stand up or alternatively wiggling and bum walking your way to perhaps stairs where you might be able to hoist yourself up onto the lower stair. Now, do you know if there are specific numbers in terms of how many seniors are injured due to falls or, you know, how many patients do you see with fall-related injuries at your facility? So statistics say that about one in three seniors aged 65 years or older will likely fall at least once in their lifetime. And that most of these falls, or 50% of the falls, happen at home. And even more importantly, 80% of those happen during the day. So at one-to-one rehab, I don't have an exact statistic of how many people that I see are a direct result of a fall. Some of them have been referred to me for surgical means or for chronic pain. Um, But I would guesstimate that approximately half of the caseload that I see is fall-related. And can you describe what is that therapy like to help get seniors back to the way they were after a fall? Okay, so when I get a referral, um, I plan an appointment and I do a detailed assessment. And I use specific evidence-based practice outcome measures to be able to determine what what the issues are. And and it may include things like uh, I notice that they're having a hard time going up downstairs or they need to use their hands to push up from a chair or they're holding on to furniture as they walk through the room. These are all signs of a lack of strength or balance. And I look at joint movement. I look at pain. I look at posture. I look at range of motion. And by doing those type of objective measurements, I can determine more precisely what the cause of the fall may be. And we can set some goals, and then you devise an individual plan to be able to address that. And I guess it would be hard to say specifically how long that takes. It depends on the individual. Most definitely. Um, Individuals who have comorbidities or what I mean by that is more than one medical issue going on. You might have a senior who fell but um, had a stroke five years ago and was left with a, a bit of mild weakness. Or they might have vertigo and suffer from dizziness on occasion or arthritic pain from a joint, say an ankle, that is a result of an old sports injury. And those types of things can be uh, 
worsened by a fall, um, and therefore you may need to treat the injuries from a fall and maybe chronic illnesses that might have been spurred up. Um, it also can depend on the client's mental status and their ability to learn and retain knowledge. So all of those things can impact how long a therapy would be. Now, if our listeners want more information about one-to-one rehab, where can they go? Uh, we have a website. It's one-to-onerehab.ca, uh, where you can find information on how to contact us and the different services that we provide. Or alternatively, we have a 1-800 number. It's one 866 5190 That would be a good starting point. That's terrific. Thanks for joining us on the feed, Kiyomi. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Over to Jim Lang now and how boxing can help the battle against Parkinson's disease. They call it the sweet science. It is boxing, a sport that is as old as the time immemorial that dates back to the ancient Greeks and the Olympics. And now boxing is used in the science in the fight against Parkinson's. To talk more about Rocksteady Boxing in York Region, thrilled to be speaking to Melissa Tward on the feed. Melissa, how are you? Fine, how are you? Good. I'm. This is something near and dear to my heart. My father-in-law is suffering with Parkinson's. I can see the effects the disease has in an individual. Why boxing? I'm just curious, what was the, the thought behind using boxing as a way to, to help stave off the effects of Parkinson's? Well, there's been numerous studies done. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a cure, but one of the studies have shown, um, again, we're holding 24 different research studies in Canada alone, committed to finding a cure for Parkinson's disease. Uh, and in the past, just to give a little information, in the past when a person was diagnosed with PD, neurologists would prescribe medication to help combat the symptoms, along with telling them to do some form of exercise and come back in a year. Hmm. More recently, one of the studies being conducted in the Cleveland Clinic has found that forced intense exercise, such as rock-steady boxing, may be neuroprotective in actually slowing down the disease progression, which in turn improves the quality of life, both physically and mentally. And I think about the workout involved with Rocksteady Boxing, skipping rope, working the speed bag, the heavy bag. It's that cardio, it's the power. You really are forcing your body to do something, to use all of its power to its fullest. Yes, it's very important. Forced exercise makes the difference, but doing that, You have to be able to do it in a safe way because you don't want their bodies to get overheated. You know, again, they have to go to a certain level, but then they have to come back. So we Uh. also give time to get, have water to just to get them to breathe. Because sometimes what I find is with Parkinson's people, when they're working out, they stop breathing. Like they, they, their breath becomes tight and that's not good. No, it's not. Okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah, so at different intervals, I'll actually say to them, okay, guys, sit down, grab some water, take five, and they do. Um, but it is, it's a boxing workout, but not only is it a boxing workout, we address all the different other symptoms of Parkinson's, speech, balance, cognitive, depression, 
which is a huge thing with people with Parkinson's due to a hearing the news of the disease mm-hmm. and if there is no cure and b the medication sometimes causes the depression so when when they come to into our class again we close it's private it's not open to the public mm-hmm. it's a place where they can be amongst one another and enjoy each other's company so not only do we work out with them but we also have this other stuff that we engage them in on a more social level because i really feel that they also want to connect socially not only them but their caregivers their husbands or their wives it's important to have people who understand what you're going through and you can talk together i i and share I just couldn't agree more, Melissa. I mean, I think everything you're touching upon is 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 bang on. Are you noticing tangible benefits from the people taking part in your rock steady boxing? Oh, oh yes. I mean, we had, as a matter of fact, we had a gentleman yesterday. He's 97 years old, and he comes in with a walker. And we were teaching because, again, I teach them. I try to strengthen their body, their muscles, to support them in their everyday life. So, learning how to get up and down. Hmm. Uh, learning how to reach. The biggest one is falling. They have a fear of falling. So yesterday in class, for example, we put out a mat, we set up chairs, and I was just teaching them that once you fall, how to get up. Getting up on the right side, getting up on the left. It's For them, it's a full body workout because you're working your legs, you're working your core, you're working your arms. So it was interesting because my one little boxer said, I, you know, whenever his corner man, which is the person who comes to help him, said, you know what, every time he falls, we get a call, we have to run over to his house to pick him up. I said, okay, you know, I leave it, I don't push. All of a sudden, I give a look, he's trying to do it too. And he did it. And he did it. And it was amazing. And he felt good. So when my boxers come to me and ache with aches and pains, I go, okay, that's fine. Okay, now we're going to go work out. <laughs> <laughs> you can get more details about if you want to be involved in Rocksteady Boxing. It's yorkregion.rsbaffiliate.com. RSB yeah. for Rocksteady Boxing. So it's yorkregion.rsbaffiliate.com. It is an amazing program, and I, I'm thinking about this and going, there's a certain genius to it, Melissa, and obviously you, you're a person that with kind and careness, but also the real thought going behind this. I, I'm so impressed to talk to you about this. It's a fantastic concept. It is. It, it's, I mean, I am, fl- I am floored. Like when I learned and I trained in this, I, I never realized, you know, what, you know, when you're learning something and you're doing something, it's two different things. But I wake up every day and say, thank God I'm happy what I'm doing. I love it. It is, I think, I don't know who's receiving more benefit from it, me or them. Hmm. And it was funny, like one of my boxers said to me, um, you know, in coming to the classes, he said, I might attend other boxing, other, sorry, other Parkinson's disease programs, but Rocksteady Boxing York Reading is my family. And I need to check in at least once a week. When I come to class, I feel like I'm coming home. Hmm. So what it means is like, again, the minute our boxers walk through the door, you could just feel the camaraderie between them. And I'm so fortunate to be part of such a wonderful program. We actually had Parkinson's Canada come to critique the class. 
and she she was floored. Well, that's that's got to be music to your ears to hear that kind of feedback from someone calling what you're doing family and to get that kind of feedback from Parkinson's Canada. It is phenomenal. It's taken me a year to get there with her. <laughs> because, again, well, you know what it is, and I understand. They can't endorse everything. You know, you have to check it out. You have to make sure that people are running it properly. So it was really nice when when she reached out to me and said, I've heard about you, Melissa, and the program. I'd like to come. And I go, now that you've seen it, at least now spread it more to your people with Parkinson's. You know who's running it. You know how we run it. You know, you feel more secure in, in passing on this information. And she said, no problem. And, and that's what it is. It's just getting it out. This is awesome. Melissa Tward is part of Rocksteady Boxing York Region. Email her. Uh, you can get information. But go to their website, yorkregion.rsbaffiliate.com. Yorkregion.rsbaffiliate.com for Rocksteady Boxing York Region in the fight fighting back against Parkinson's. Melissa, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. A continued success doing great work against this horrible disease. Uh, you are an inspiration to hear you talk. Thank you so much. Thank you for thank you for reaching out. You know, it's always appreciated. To, you know, when someone comes out with the, in the community and says, look, how can we help you? Well, I mean, and, talking to someone like you, the pleasure is all ours. Thank you. I, I, again, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Will do. Take care, Melissa. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including how to find the best summer camp for your child. Netta Sarshar with the details. As the weather gets warmer and school begins to finish up, there is one thing on nearly every Canadian parent's mind. What am I going to do with my kids this summer? While the summer represents a great time for young people to relax and enjoy time off from school, it's also a spectacular opportunity for them to pick up on a few lessons that they may not have access to in a classroom. Speaking with me today about summer camps and why they are important is Miriam Reeser, Executive Director of Willow Grove Day Camp, located in Stouffville. How are you doing, Miriam? Oh, I'm well today, and yourself? I'm good, thank you. Excited to be speaking to you about this. Well, it's a favorite topic of mine, so I'm glad to talk about camp and children in the outdoors. Great, <laughs> let's get to it. Um, so what sort of programs are offered in Willow Grove? Okay, well, we're a not-for-profit organization that has the privilege to have 100 acres uh, just north of Markham, uh, almost on the Markham-Stouffville border, and so on this property during the school year, we have outdoor education programs. Many school classes come to visit us. In the summer, we're a day camp all about the outdoors. And evenings and weekends year-around, we have family groups, church groups, business groups rent our properties so they can enjoy doing their own program in the outdoors. And you also have a leaders in training program, I believe? That's Part of our day camp. Our day camp is for children ages 4 to 13 in our regular camp program. The 14-year-old is the year they're in grade 8. Uh, this is a summer from going to grade 8, and then come fall they're in grade 9. And we do have a, a two-week leadership and training program that we offer. It's a two-week program we offer three times during the summer. And it's really with the goal of 
looking at the skills, you need to do that jump from grade 8 to grade 9. So, yes, that's part of our summer day camp. Amazing. So what sort of skills would we would come to mind for a program like that? Being comfortable in a group of peers. Um, it's not unusual at grade 8. Uh, you're going to then a larger high school, so maybe some of your friends are going to the same school, some aren't. So how are What's your comfort level with a group of people maybe you haven't met before, your peers, because making friends are a good indicator of success in high school. So you're in this small group supported with a counselor, but just what are the skills you need to make friends? That's, that's the entry point. And then what is your ability to contribute to group discussions? Obviously, we're not going to do academic discussions at camp. Phew. But in a camp, in, yeah, few, right? But in a camp environment, whether it's archery or canoeing, traditional camp activities, how do you keep a conversation going? How do you chat with somebody you don't know that well? If you then have a discussion about the activity, how um, part of the goal of the LIT leader is to help each person contribute and be comfortable contributing it. Another uh, learning outcome is just can you lead an activity session? Um, part of a, we know there's a lot of group work that happens in every part of school, but in high school that increases more. Could you be a small group leader? Could you lead the activity? It's camp, so it's fun. You might be leading a campfire, leading a fun activity, um, but that's an important skill for school. Can you be the group leader? And then part of our program is uh, our younger kids have a counselor, their schedule. LITs start moving into having their own schedule. They're responsible for some of their own time, for showing up uh, where they're scheduled to show up, to to have a task that they've committed to doing and seeing it through. So it's another level of independence. All of this feeds into high school skills. So why do you think that camp is an ideal environment for young people to be building leadership skills like what you mentioned um, versus more of an academic one? I think it's the community and uh, particularly for youth who may be um, feel the stress of the school environment, of, oh, grades matter. Um, there's, the, you know, we hear so much pressure that comes with succeeding in school. Camp is a non-pressured situation, and then it's an opportunity to focus on some other skill sets, such as your, you know, your ability to make friends, your leadership skills. Um, maybe the person that uh, shines more in um, actual physical tasks has a chance to shine. So maybe they're a great wall climber where they might not be the top student in math. It's a relaxed environment where those skills matter and that youth has a chance to really shine. So it's more of, I think, the relaxed, the community environment. And out of doors does wonders for everyone, children through adults. And I think people always are their best selves in an out-of-door environment. I'm well past the age of being able to attend summer camp, but I am so jealous. <laughs> so you mentioned that camp is a non-pressure environment. Are there any other mental health benefits to attending? Yeah, interesting. There's been a lot of research of the effects of nature on mental health. And one of the interesting uh, 
and I could send you a whole list of research studies because I'm interested in this. Uh, my background is in children's mental health. Wow. Um, but it's particularly a reduction on anxiety, and there just seems to be a direct correlation to green space, being out of the doors, whether it's the trees, the greenery, the water, the creeks, that um, it just has highly stressed children in the research studies and of showing significant results in out-of-door settings. And so that's one of the great things about a camp in the out-of-doors. Now, you'll see camp on a lot of things, and there could be people that say, I'm running a camp, but it could be in a school gym, it could be inside. I think it's the outdoor camps, that outdoor experience that really benefits a child's or a youth's mental health. So in a quick research of Willow Grove, I was struck with how diverse the attendees tend to be. You have uh, programs for young people with special needs, international students. How do you go about creating such an inclusive space? Well, it, you know, it ties right into our mission statement, and our mission statement includes that we value diversity, we value inclusion, we value taking care of the world God created, but in order to value diversity, it each person matters. So, you know, it really doesn't... Um, so we try hard to be inclusive. We do have a one-to-one -one program for children with special needs, which is regretfully basically full for this year. The need is always higher than what we can provide. We have a few of those spaces. We also offer a subsidy program where we try to help with some camp fees with families who don't have an outdoor camp in their budget. Um, and so we work hard, whether, you know, culture, race, income level, skill level, camp is a great equalizer. So where can people go to get more information about Willow Grove? Well, our website is willowgrove, one word, um, dot ca, and that is the best. You'll find information on our day camp, on our year-round outdoor education program, on our weekend rentals, and then we have our sister camp is in the Bancroft area. Fraser Lake is our overnight camp, and we have a, it's also a not-for-profit organization, and we have a, a great program we run there for 8- to 14-year-olds who want a bit more of that um, overnight adventure on a lake, um, the next step out in independence and testing yourself. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Earlier this month, Canada joined a growing global movement with a plan to ban single-use plastics. Restaurants are among the industries trying to change. But how do they make the switch to no more plastics? Canada is leading the way to get rid of single-use plastics since it has had and continues to have devastating effects on our environment. But we have several companies who aren't waiting for the ban on single-use plastic to take place. We can al already see the transition from plastic to compostable products. Now, of course, joining me today to talk about this is Mark Marinosi, who is the Vice President in Marketing for Leading Compostable Tableware Manufacturer, World Centric. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you. It's my pleasure. Of course. Okay, so let's let the listeners know, what is WorldCentric, and what kind of products do you provide, or does the company provide? Well, WorldCentric is one of the leading companies in North America providing single-use disposable tableware. But what really distinguishes us from uh, the the more familiar ones that I'm sure your listeners uh, see in their store shelves or uh, see in restaurants and cafes that they frequent is that all of our products are 100% compostable. And what that means is that unlike products made from petroleum-based plastics or from wood fiber, virgin wood fiber, ours are all made out of rapidly renewable materials. So that would be the waste from making sugar with sugar cane. That would be uh, using the straw left over from the production of wheat. That would be utilizing bamboo fiber. And last but not least, we use plant-based plastics. Primarily, they're called PLA, and they're produced out of taking the sugars that are uh, typically used only for industrial purposes from sugar beets or cassava or sometimes from corn. And that's turned into plastic. And it has very comparable durability uh, to petroleum-based plastic. So really we now live in a time where there's literally nothing that needs to be made as a result of pumping oil out of the ground or cutting down a tree that takes 50 to 100 years to regenerate uh, to service your needs of, you know, getting coffee out of a coffee cup in the morning or serving a picnic with plates and bowls and utensils. Uh, we make all of those things, and they can all be turned into soil within 180 days in a commercial compost facility. Wow. Okay. So first off, I didn't even know half of the things that you were mentioning could even be turned into a, a thing that we could use into sort of compost or it could be biodegradable. That is pretty awesome. I mean, we only think of maybe paper-based products, but some of the things that you mentioned were honestly completely left field to me. Well, and some of these things, uh, well, first of all, I'll say a lot of that's because there's been built up over the decades since the 1950s an infrastructure that supports petroleum and wood fiber-based disposable tableware. You know, we as a society have become a convenient society. You know, we have, we're all running really fast in our lives. Uh, we have very little time to plan ahead to do things. So this disposable society that we live in has to change in order for our world to continue to thrive and not be inundated with pollution. So in a lot of ways, world-centric is sort of a bridge between the old behaviors and ultimately down the road, a behavior of using reusables as much as possible. Right on. Okay, so I know along with a lot of the products that are offered that are um, compostable, um, the term sustainability is always um, connected to it. Can you help us understand what that necessarily means, what it means to be, what is sustainability, basically? Yeah, you know, sustainability is one of those uh, sort of squishy terms that I feel like people throw around a lot. And, uh, you know, they, they use it sometimes or bend it to their needs. Uh, the truth be told is, you know, sustainability as a phrase needs to be boiled down to one very simple thing, which is that you're trying to avoid 
an overdepletion of natural resources in the world in order to come to an ecological balance. You want that, you want our world to be sustainable. You want it to be able to take care of your children and your children's children and, and you know, future generations. Well, again, if we're egocentric, we just think about ourselves and just consume, 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 that is incapable of being sustainable in the long term. Whereas if you create structures that can still give you a high quality living experience, that can still delight you as a person in your everyday life, you know, you can still have a fantastic dinner party that you serve to your guests. It just doesn't have to be with petroleum and wood fiber based products anymore in your backyard. You can use something that you can put into the compost waste stream and it turns into soil. So that's a good step in the right direction towards a more sustainable future. And so with the compostable products then, uh, now that, of course, the transition, of course, is trying to be made, it's not necessarily just for the environment, it's for um, the general sort of well-being of you and I at the end of the day. How receptive are these products um, to, with restaurant owners um, that are trying to transition from plastic to paper? That's a really good question. Um, I would say up until a few years ago, a lot of restaurants and cafe and coffee house owners, uh, large and small, they looked at compostable products as sort of a niche thing. They didn't see them as important to them. But things have changed very rapidly in the past couple of years. I would attribute that to a, a few factors. Number one, we have legislation such as that proposed in Canada right now to phase out uh, you know, single-use you know, plastics by 2021 uh, where it comes from government. It's government coming in and legislating to say we can't continue to operate this way. It's not sustainable, and so we have to think differently. We have to think about how we can create a sustainable model that's going to still work for everybody. Another has been that um, as more people adopt utilizing compostable products and it becomes a bigger category, the cost comes down of you know, utilizing those products. Um, a third factor I would say is generational. Without a doubt, particularly millennials have been driving this idea of you know, having things be for a better world and being more world-centric rather than egocentric. They're thinking about the community. They're thinking about sustainability. So if you're a restaurant owner, you're looking at that whole situation and saying, well, what used to be really expensive to me that my customers didn't care about and government, governments weren't necessarily pressuring me to make a changeover, well, all three of those things are changing very rapidly. So I have to change. I have to innovate or I have to become irrelevant due to those number of factors that you just mentioned that, of course, restaurant owners are, are quite receptive to the transition. And I know you mentioned earlier, uh, of course, with the deadline being 2021, is that a hard change that all eating establishments um, have to make in terms of the transition from plastic to paper? Well, it's not currently. And uh, we uh, certainly will be continuing to encourage and advocate also going to continue to be part of the discussion from a legislative standpoint and hopefully help accelerate that. 
what then maybe what else needs to be done maybe on the level of you and I what can we do to re- reduce the amount of single use plastics that we're using so often so I'm going to give you a couple of initial ideas first of all uh, whenever possible bring a water bottle you know there's all sorts of great water bottles that are out there all sorts of brands now and there's really no reason any longer that anybody needs to go use a plastic water bottle that they've bought of bottled water. Uh, The same goes with coffee cups. You know, coffee cups are one of the most wasteful things that we do on an everyday basis. You can walk into a coffee shop and bring your own coffee mug. In fact, most coffee shops any longer, you know, they give you a discount if you do that. Another thing that I'll share that I think is extremely important is Talk to your local waste hauler, and if you don't have composting in your neighborhood, call them up and ask them, can you start picking up compostable materials? If it isn't even capable of taking food service ware like ours that's capable of being composted, start with food scraps. Just say, hey, I want to be able to collect my food scraps. I'm going to scrape my food scraps left over from dinner off of my plate, put it into a bowl. I want to be able to bring it out to a green can. I can dump it in and you can take it. Last but not least is if you have a home where you have a backyard and you have a garden, go buy a home composter. Um, They're really easy to use. There's all sorts of YouTube videos and other, you know, explanation on how to start your own home composting. Those are a couple of ideas. Um, where can listeners connect and find more information about WorldCentric? Well, I definitely encourage them to go to worldcentric.com. And then I would also say, um, whenever possible, you know, go to our, not only to our website, but to our social media channels. We have, we're on Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram. We have a very active community there. Thank you so much, Mark, uh, for joining me today on The Feed. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea, community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.